All right. Good morning, Trinity Church. How we doing? All right. Yeah. It's great to see you today. You are not only a lively bunch as far as the way that you like to hang out and say hi to people, which I love. Don't want to squelch that, but I want to talk. So I'm going to get started. But secondly, it's great to hear you sing on an acoustic set like today. Your voices are so rich in the room. So thank you for joining in and participating. Can we thank our, welcome, our worship team? What a great job they did today. All right. Well, last weekend, if you, didn't, if you weren't with us, or maybe you just wanted to think a little bit more on this covenant, we have more of these. If you came in today, did you come in the lobby and did you see all those in there? I thought that was so cool. I want to thank Bill's team for being so creative and thoughtful about uh, just kind of displaying those so we could see them. If you weren't here last week, we basically began our new chapter together by saying, God, we want to be your people. And all of us, as leaders, as pastors, elders, as the congregation, we want to walk in your ways. And so I asked us as a people to, to sign these covenants. If you weren't here, want to participate. And by the way, I, to great lengths, we talked about our Germany team being back today. They took these with them, signed them via simulcast, and then took a picture of them all sitting on the table. Made my heart so happy when I got that text. Uh, it was great. Well, if you want to join that, though, these are in the back. This bigger one for you to sign and keep. The smaller one for you to sign, lay in the basket, and then we will grow our display next week as well. So I want to include you in that. Make sure you're a part of that as we begin and get started. Well, it is just a privilege to get to be here with you today as we now really get to start not only a new chapter, but a new series and begin moving forward. If you have a Bible, book Bible, electronic Bible, open it to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be there for a while and uh, looking forward to getting to dive into that with you. If you um, have notes, which are in your worship folder, take those out, have those ready to go. And we'll be moving forward as well. I really do want to thank uh, Bill's creative team, even for the background. It's not often I get to preach in front of goalposts. So I'm loving that and a great job. And thank you to Chris doing all the design work that we have up here on the banner today and in our invite cards and all those things. I want to remind you about the inviter cards. That is a, just a well done um, media piece that's great to be able to hand out to people and just say, hey, we're starting a brand new series at our church. would love for you to come see what that's all about and just use that. That's what they're for is to just invite folks. They look sharp so that's not a sense of you feeling awkward giving it to someone. So take advantage of that. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing how God's just going to keep pushing the ball down the field. Sorry for the pun. And um, get going. By the way, if you're not a sports fan, have no fear. I am not known to do sports illustrations all the time. It just seemed to make sense. Football's in the air. The Rams started yesterday. I think it's uh, good to go, and uh, we'll be fine. Don't, it's okay if you're not a Rams fan. No problem, okay? Um, last thing I want to remind you is that um, as we just think about our Trinity Church family, we've had the privilege of having Jonathan and Tracy Shoemaker here with us for the last probably eight months or so, but they go back to Portugal this week. Are you guys in this service? I thought you were going to be here. Would you guys stand real quick? Let's just thank God for them. And um, <clears throat> So if you see them between the service, just make sure you extend you know, God's love to them. They're a part of the Trinity family, and we love that about our missions teams being very much a part of who this church is. Well, here's how it went. July 1961. A group of 38 professional athletes got back together, and they had come 
off of a very difficult ending to their season. Back then, the Super Bowl was called the NFL Championship. I only know this because I read history books, okay? wasn't there. But in that, uh, the, the Green Bay Packers had lost the NFL Championship. They had blown a fourth-quarter lead to the Philadelphia Eagles, and the Eagles ended up winning that game. So it had been a few months, and it was July, getting ready for summer practices for a new fall season. And as they got together, the, the team was assembled, ready to, to work with their coach, expecting the coach to say, here's where we failed. Let's talk about new techniques, new details, new strategies to, to be the champions that we want to be. We were this close. Let's actually now move the ball forward in new directions by, by just moving on to greater things. But instead, that first day in the locker room, the Green Bay Packers coach, Vince Lombardi, pulled his team together, and he started with this iconic phrase, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, for a group of professional athletes who had tasted the highest form of success in their sport, I wonder if they would have felt like that was kind of condescending that day. They were so close to being the champions, and now we're starting all the way back at square one. It had to be confusing. I know that as I come to Trinity Church, I come to an elder board and a pastoral staff and a congregation of people who know a thing or two about church. That's not the question. But what I really want to do, what I want to begin with is getting us all on the same page so that when we are talking about Christ and his church, so that when we're talking about the mission of what God has called Trinity Church to we're not using language or terms or ideas that we're not all understanding. I don't want to assume that when I say one thing that it means that to you or vice versa. So I thought that's why the tagline in our, in our series, getting on the same page with, with God's objectives for his church, I don't say this series as a condescending concept at all. But instead to say, let's go back to the basics. Let's begin with the foundation And let's move forward together so we can say the same thing. I think of some of the phrases and the ideas in the book of Ephesians that we would be foolish to think that we all assume mean the same thing when we say them. Things like salvation. Things like being adopted into the family of God. The rich word, grace. Concepts like what it means to be in Christ. Or the mystery of the gospel. How we ought to pray for one another. How, we are, how it's so essential that we as a family live in unity. What it means to take off the old self, to put on the new. How God instructs us to live out our marriages and to engage our parenting, or how we've been outfitted to engage in spiritual warfare. All of those things are found in this essential book called Ephesians. I don't want to assume anything that we all just know what we're talking about. So this is what I want to do. As we begin a new chapter together, I want to encourage you, let's go back to basics. Let's go back to the fundamentals and concerning the basics of God's objectives for his church and to see what God will show us along the way as we desire to be his people who live his way. So gentlemen and gentle ladies, this is a football. Number one in your notes today, let's begin with introductions. Let's be introduced today to the coach introductions to the coach. That phrase from Ephesians 1 verse 1, it's fascinating by the way, last week we tried to tackle an entire book of the Bible, today we're taking on two verses. 
I know. Contrast. You're like, Todd, you are tripping me out. I know. That's not a bad thing. So we begin with Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is the same Paul who was formerly ambitious, legalistic, a Christian persecuting Pharisee. And we're going to find him in the book of Ephesians as the coach to this team to be almost the antithesis really of that. It was when he met Jesus on a road to Emmaus that everything changed. He was one who was sent by, that's the word apostle, sent by Jesus, the Messiah himself. So he's saying a lot in a very short introductory phrase. Very consistent with Paul's epistles. That's another word for letters. His letters to the New Testament churches, he begins his greeting by identifying himself. Now that's really important. Because Paul didn't live in a day with smartphones that the, the moment that the call comes in, you just look at it, you know exactly who's calling you, right? Or he didn't live in a world of social media that as soon as you get a message over Instagram or Facebook or read someone's post, there's a picture identified with it, you know exactly who it's coming from. This letter was delivered to this church and the very first thing he begins with is, here's the author, We're going to see in chapter 6 that this letter is hand-delivered by one of Paul's trusted friends, a guy named Tychicus. And as Tychicus must have come walking up the road to deliver this letter, maybe to one of the elders or to even the church assembled, let's say, they received it with great anticipation. There would have been great rejoicing by the believers at Ephesus when they realized the letter had come from their beloved Paul, their spiritual father. Because Paul brought the gospel to the region, to the city of Ephesus in the first place. We read over the course of Acts where the narration of, of, the, of kind of the New Testament church is found that Paul spent more time with the Ephesians than any other church that he had planted. So these particular people in Paul, they have a strong bond, a strong connection. When we read about the content in the letter of, of, of Ephesians, we find a rich love a rich love and an affection that he had for these followers of Christ, many who had come to faith directly, primarily through his influence. Even more, they would have wanted to know how Paul was doing because Paul was writing from a prison cell. In the New Testament, we have what we call the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. All of these were written while Paul was incarcerated in Rome simply for being a Christian. He was inciting town after town of those who were both the Jewish pharisaical group that he'd come from, as well as those who were opposed and frustrated by his efforts and opportunities to bring this great news of Jesus' love. Town after town was continually and consistently frustrated when Paul came, and so finally he had met his match and he was taken to jail. Now, from a human perspective, that was a sign of defeat, but look what God was doing. Even from a jail cell, these rich words, the letter of Ephesians comes to us today. To me, that's amazing about just God's sovereign movement over things that we would see as a setback. God is using in this great way. We're going to find that Paul is going to be a great coach a great coach to the Ephesians, the kind of coach who brings out the best in his players because he encourages them, he instructs them, and he gives them the engaging vision of the payoff at the end if they'll work together. All of those things are Paul's tactics in this book. Paul, an apostle, a sent one of Christ Jesus. Number two, introductions in your notes. Number two, introduce you to the owner. To the owner, that phrase, by the will of God. Kind of using this football motif a little bit, I was trying to process who is who related to a football team. 
And if, if Paul's going to be the coach coming alongside these Ephesian believers, then it seems pretty obvious then that God himself's the owner of the team. Now, I, if you know many NFL owners, you might not want to put him in that same category. That's okay. No problem with that today. But, uh, but nonetheless, we'll kind of use that, that thought throughout our metaphor today. Now, Paul writes that he's an apostle, right? One of these sent ones from Jesus, um, by the will of God. Now that phrase, even in the brief introduction, Paul is mindful that he's in this role not because he volunteered, but because God, by his sovereign grace, his choice, chose him to be this instrument to this part of the world. What we're gonna find out in the book of Ephesians is that this God, this owner of the team, as it were, is a loving and gracious and purposeful God. That's who Paul represents him rightly to be. And that God now has these objectives in mind. He's gonna accomplish his will in his world. Now as an owner, right, as an owner of a team has objectives when he initially purchases a team, puts a lot of resources into that team to be successful, so God has objectives in mind as he purchased this team and has poured resources into it for its, for its success. An NFL team owner, he's really after two things. Number one, win a Super Bowl, and number two, profit wildly from it. It's kind of what it's all about. Win the Super Bowl and then make a bunch of money. Well, this owner, in your notes, this owner has a different set of objectives. It's to use his people, his team, to demonstrate what Jesus accomplished in his rescue mission of the world. That's what God is after. The owner of the team wants to use his church to represent, to demonstrate what Jesus accomplished in the world. Why do I say that? Well, we're going to skip ahead just to show today. We'll get more time with it. Ephesians chapter 3, move your Bible over there, verse 10, talking about God, his, God the Father's intent was that now through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. More about that later. According to his what? Eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll get a whole week to dive down into Ephesians 3 and it comes after a lot of incredibly important theology about who is the church, who's included in the family of God. But then he makes this great statement, through the church, God is demonstrating what he wanted to do all along in the person and the work of Christ. Now the owner's son, this Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we just read about, he's the key character in this series. And my hope is gonna be that he's gonna be the key character in every series at Trinity Church because everything is all about and leads us to and points back to the greatness of the Son of God, of Jesus himself. Number three, introductions. Let's move on to the team. Who are we talking about now? Who is this letter addressed to? Continuing in Ephesians 1.1, to God's holy people in Ephesus. To God's holy, his set aside, his consecrated people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's who the specific initial audience is for this letter. So being, after being introduced to the coach and after being introduced to the owner, now we finally meet the team members themselves. Take a look up at the screen. Let me show you where Ephesus was. I want to give you today some visuals to begin to kind of wrap your mind around who we're going to be talking about and where these people were in the world over the next few weeks. So you'll notice that this is the Middle East, at least the, the western side of it, and then Turkey and Greece in this picture. And you'll notice there is Ephesus on the far western side of Turkey. You'll notice that it's, it looks like it's right there on the ocean. 
So it was an incredibly important city related to commerce, that, that ships would come in and out of Ephesus's bay in order to trade and, and to pick up products and, and return them. And so Ephesus has a huge, important value to the early uh, to this part of the world at this era, and back at the turn of this or in the whenever it was, a long time ago, right? <laughs> Todd's going to get words out, I promise. Look across the way, by the way, and you'll see another other areas of, of great cultural and commerce value over in Greece being Athens and Corinth. Corinth. Philippi was up higher. So when you read the New Testament and you read about these letters written to the churches, you'll notice that they're all kind of concentrated in this part of the world. Now, what's fascinating to me is I had this incredible opportunity. It's amazing to think it was seven years ago, but back in 2009, one of the pastors at our church at HCC invited me to go on a study trip to Turkey. Now, when he first said it, he's like, Todd, I want to take you to Turkey. And I thought, why on earth do I want to go to Turkey? He's like, because most of the New Testament church happens there. I said, oh, I'd like to go to Turkey. Okay, I really, I was that ignorant of kind of the geography of where the early church had, had really grown and blossomed. So, so going to Turkey and visiting multiple sites of where either the early church was or significant things in the New Testament happened, I would have to say Ephesus was by far one of my favorite cities. So this is how it used to go. I was a kid growing up in Ukaipa, and we, would, uh, we had relatives, a great, great aunt and uncle down in Riverside. Seriously, his name was Harley Cooter. What a great name, right? Uncle Harley, Aunt Dorothy. And we would go down, and we'd, we'd go and visit Uncle Harley and Aunt Dorothy, and when we would, you just kind of knew, okay? and then talking as a kid, like seven, eight, nine, ten. And so as a kid, you knew that going to Uncle Harley's house meant that he was going to get out the slide projector, right? That buzz in the room, you know, as the kind of thing's warming up. And he'd show us slides from who knows where on earth and many more than we ever wanted to see. Many of them upside down, turned sideways, like not even in focus, have no idea what's going on there. So it runs in my blood and I want to show you pictures, okay? <laughs> so at least you know why, why I'm doing this. But I really, besides being Uncle Harley's descendant, I want to give you a visual context for where we're going to be looking. So take a look at a few pictures today. The first one is the walkway kind of at the top of the, the ruins of uh, Ephesus. So you would start here walking into the city. When people today think the city of Ephesus, this is what they think of. And as you'll notice the columns, and you'll notice what looks to be very obviously from the ancient world, it's just impressive seeing what they've excavated and what's available to see today. Look at the next couple of pictures. This is the ancient library. You saw it down the road a minute ago. Now you're up kind of close to it. This library actually wasn't constructed in the first century, so Paul wouldn't have known about this cultural icon, but Ephesus is definitely a cultural um, Mecca, in a sense. It had great cultural value and worth. We'll find out more in a minute why. The library, look at the next picture. The reason I just thought this was so impressive was, number one, it's one of the only buildings kind of really still remaining in this sense. But two, being a two-story building, even if you look down below, you see the insets of different statues, just beautiful ornamentation that's still available to see, representative, again, of the cultural just kind of a value of the city of Ephesus. Look at this next picture. For people who are sports fans, I thought you'd appreciate this. This is the goddess Nike, okay? <laughs> Legit. And, um, and um, Phil didn't make this up. He actually stole it from her. 
But that's really her name. Nike, the word means victory, if you've heard the story before. But what I found fascinating, going on this study trip, even looking a little bit at the representation of this goddess, you kind of might notice in the folds of her robe, the swoosh. That's where he got it from. Seriously. I, I was impressed. Our tour guide told us that, and I thought, wow, that's really impressive. I've known a Nike swoosh most of my life, but I had no idea where Phil stole it from, so that's it. So just, you know, for what it's worth, you're like, Todd, you're being Uncle Harley. Move on. Okay. Take a look at the next slide. This is the, the uh, amazing, exactly, the Ephesian public restroom. Now, you got to realize, in, in the first century, this was amazing that there would literally even be public restrooms available. This was no small feat, both through architecture and even technology to get sewage and the whole thing going on. But when we came and visited, it was just really impressive to consider, wow, it's amazing this was in the city, but even more amazing is what it would be like to have actually used them. (laughs) Super close to your neighbor, right? Okay. Take a look at the next picture. This is the amphitheater. Now, this amphitheater is really impressive. As you remember the, the, the narration of Acts, in chapter 19, this is where the riot happens. You'll remember the riot. Paul comes into town. He's been there for now a few years. And what's happened is the Christian church has grown so much that Christians realize what, what I haven't told you yet about the city of Ephesus is it was the major center for worship to the goddess Diana or Artemis. And so in that worship environment, they were making so much profit-wise from people coming literally all over the world to Ephesus to worship Diana that now Christians, people are turning to Christ, realizing there's nothing of value or worth in worshiping that. And so they're taking their scrolls and their statuettes of Diana and burning them in the town center. Now, those who are profiting from the the selling of these scrolls and these um, idols are very, very frustrated, and they bring two of Paul's um, associates, they bring him into this amphitheater, and they said that a riot starts, and I, I'm trying to process kind of the chaos of the crowd. You maybe have been in some environments when crowds have just kind of gotten out of control. It says in Acts 19 that a crowd assembled in this amphitheater, and they were chanting, great is Artemis, God of the Ephesians, for two hours straight. So much so that people joined the crowd and didn't even know why they were there. We're just It looks like there's some fun. Let's go join. Great is uh, Diana, Artemis, you know, God of the Ephesians. But they're in this, this is the actual amphitheater. This amphitheater could hold up to 25,000 people, no sound systems, pure acoustic. Just amazing to consider. And uh, just today, still in, in a lot of ways, very intact. Now take a look at the next picture. The next picture shows the walkway, the arcade walkway, as it were, that would lead to the bay. Now you'll notice, I don't see any water. Rightly so. Look where all the brown is out in the foreground or in the background. That used to be water. What's happened is over 2,000 years, the whole bay has silted up. I've, I've, I've never kind of witnessed something that when people told me this used to be all water and now it's all silt, it blew my mind. You have to walk it a mile to the coast now from Ephesus where water used to come right up to the edge of that, that street. And that's kind of impressive to know, but that's where we see the commercial value of this city because it had water that came right up to it. Take a look at the next picture. This is proof that I was there. (laughs) It is not photoshopped, okay? That's where I was standing, and I just need you to see that. Um, Take a look at the next two pictures. What's interesting, you remember Turkey is a Muslim nation. Now, what's fascinating is that of all the Muslim nations in the world, Turkey has some of the most leniency to the Western world. 
but still is restricted. So what's fascinating is you'll go to different sites and very little, if any, excavation has gone on where, where the, the church was mentioned in Scripture, there's not much going on So because there's not much of an interest. Well, a, a group from Germany has come and they've been allowed to, in the city of Ephesus, do a lot of excavation what they call the terrace houses. And these terrace houses were owned by the wealthy in Ephesus. And if you'll notice the frescoes on the wall, those still remain today as they've done excavation. And and they're just beautiful, vibrant colors of reds and yellows. Take a look at the next picture. This is a mosaic that I saw that was just so right up close. I couldn't believe what's been intact. And this is, again, speaking to kind of the wealth and the cultural center of the city of Ephesus. Take a look at the next picture. This is the goddess Diana or Artemis. And um, what we talked about a minute ago, really when people in the first century, when they thought of Ephesus, they thought of Diana or Artemis. That's what Ephesus was really known for among everything else. Ephesus was the place where people worshipped the goddess Diana. And look why. Next slide. This is a rendering of what Diana's temple in Ephesus looked like. Now, this temple would have existed outside the city where I've just shown you pictures It was actually a little bit of a clip away from there in the downtown I showed you. But this is what people came literally from all over the world. You'll see in the text one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. If you look at all the columns, things huge. And it was bigger and more spread out than a a football field in size, when you can try to picture that in your mind. Today, take a look at the next slide. This is what remains of Diana's temple. I saw it was really impressive. If you'll notice, there's a nest on top with a bird. I just found that so interesting, like, huh, that's what remains yet today. Lastly, picture 14, it wasn't just Paul that interacted with the city of Ephesus. I probably shouldn't have been sitting in the baptistry, by the way, when we took this picture. But this is uh, the Basilica of St. John. John, we know from the Bible, was exiled because he was a believer to the island of Patmos. Patmos is right off the Ephesian coast. And so when John, after his exile, he did not die on Patmos, he was brought back to the mainland, to Ephesus, and continued to minister at the church of Ephesus until he died. So they've named a church on top of a hill after him. So those are my Uncle Harley pictures. Um, wanted to get you at least some, some visual representation of the city of Ephesus as we move through. And this is what I wanted to read to you. Of the, of the New Testament narrative, we basically find most of what happens at Ephesus in Acts 18 and 19. But it's in Acts 20 where Paul has this intentional encounter with the the elders of the Ephesian church, I wanted to draw your attention to, because I wanted you to see his heart. Look what it says, beginning in verse 17. From Miletus, Paul set out, sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So as we read about the great local church that Paul was able to to plant and begin, he's their spiritual father, We also realize about a depth of relationship, a a sincere care that he has for them. In the sequence um, that we see in Acts chapter 20, he he draws them together to tell them these words, and and more than what we read today, 
he will tell them, and I will most likely never see any of you again. He was right. He would go to Jerusalem. He would go be, become incarcerated, go on trial for his Christian faith, and then ultimately be sent to Rome where he would eventually die. But it's from Rome that he writes back this letter to the Ephesians. You know, Paul's letters are very interesting in that they often cite, this is the occasion for why I'm writing. To the Corinthians, he will say consistently, here's an answer to the question you asked, or here's things you didn't even ask about, but you have issues. To the Ephesians, that's never mentioned. There's no specific occasion that we're given except for the fact that Paul dearly loved this group of believers. He's writing from jail, and he wants them to know of the incredible depths of God's love for them. He wants them to know, as we'll unpack in this series, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be identified primarily by that relationship more than anything else about you. And I'm so excited to get to unpack that with you as we see with them. Now, that's Paul's relationship. Check it out. Decades later, we mentioned a minute ago that the apostle John was exiled to Patmos. Where you remember Revelation, the last book of the Bible, begins this way. John is exiled at Patmos and Jesus himself comes to him as it were in a cave and says, here is what I want you to say to the churches. The first chapters two and three of Revelation, Ephesus is one of the seven churches that Jesus tells John, write these words. Look at it. If you have a Bible, if you just want to read the screen, Revelation two, verse two, I know your deeds. This is Jesus talking to the church at Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So in that list, Jesus is commending the church at Ephesus. You are doing a great job in a sense holding your ground and being thoughtful about the kind of false teachers you have in your midst. But watch this, verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Or otherwise, ways we know it, you have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. By the time that John, under the inspiration of Jesus, writes to the church at Ephesus, they had become a passionate people about what they were against, but had somehow forgotten what they were supposed to be for for Jesus and an extravagant love for him. I find this today as well. I served at a church, it seems like a long lifetime ago, that would primarily be characterized in its community about being what they're against, but not what they're for. And I feel so badly now looking back on that era and thinking about, God, we so missed an opportunity to be a people of influence in our community because we kept wagging fingers and pointing rather than saying that Jesus loves you more than anything else. The letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians makes much about this love of Jesus toward us and how much we're called to love others. But somewhere along the way, the Ephesians forgot. They failed to hold fast to what they'd been told. So I say, instead, let's us, as Trinity Church, let's us not fail to be what we're about, to be what we're for. The great fact that God has loved us so extravagantly and we in turn get to love others in his name. 
So while this letter was written specifically to the Ephesian Christians in mind, thoughtfully about their geography, thoughtfully about their culture, their language, all those specific details, here's what blows my mind, that 2,000 years later, we're going to read, we're going to study, we're going to discuss words that were written to us. This is what blows my mind about Scripture, is that, yes, it's a book of antiquity. You may be here today, and that's what you think all it is. It's just a very old book put together by a bunch of authors, kind of collected sayings, and we have it today. And if that's your opinion, I appreciate you're here today. But I want to tell you that, and I want to invite you and encourage you over the next few weeks as we get to dig into Ephesians, I want you to see how the pages, the words come off the pages to you, and you realize, God, you wrote these words for me. This is how I am to live. This is how I'm to know you, not a history lesson, but instead an active living word that I'm to to live out and flesh out in my life. So excited to go there with us. So in a sense, what I say is this, the the city of Ephesians, of, of Ephesus, might have been the initial intended audience, but we are the team. Not just them in that one locale, but the church now even 2,000 years later, is the team that Paul is writing to. And I want to encourage you to engage at that level with me that these will be our instructions. This is our playbook to live out. Lastly today, number fourth introduction, the whistle. What's the whistle? And look at the phrase, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I had some people ask me this week in the office, why would you call this part the whistle? What are you talking about? And I was, I was thinking about how would a coach give a greeting or a salutation to his team? And I first thought, coaches don't give salutations, okay? Coaches say, hey, get over here. I have something I want to share with you. So what do they use? They use a whistle to get everyone's attention to huddle up. So as Paul, as it were, is using a whistle to the Ephesian believers to huddle up, he begins with a very characteristic welcome, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great way to start this letter. He starts with the word grace, and the easy definition for the word grace that I remember is getting what you don't deserve. Unmerited favor would be another way to say that. And the word peace, oftentimes we think that peace is the absence of problems, but I would say that's not a biblical definition of peace. Peace is a resolve to hold to the idea that everything is going to be okay no matter what the circumstances may be. Grace and peace to you from God and his one-of-a-kind son come before anything else in this book that is to be said. By the way, don't be worried about the absence of mentioning the Holy Spirit in these first two verses because we're going to see the Holy Spirit all over the book of Ephesians. It is coming, for sure. We're going to see more. So what's to come after this initial greeting? Well, number one, come back next week and find out. But number two, as I think about Trinity Church and I think about this series, this is what I really just want us to drill down on week after week, that we would understand and live out our new identities in Christ, that we would understand and we would live out our new identities in Christ. Look at the phrase in your notes. This is what I want to kind of percolate within your soul this week. How you live flows from whose you are. How you live flows from whose you are. Today, we don't have time to amplify that idea, but more than anything, I just want to introduce it. Just want you to let it percolate a little bit inside 
as we think about it. And then as we gather week to week to get on the same page about God's objectives for his church, here's some of the major themes. They're in your notes. Major themes we're going to see over this series. We'll see the unifying work of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason that God pulls everything together. We're going to see about our identity as the chosen members of God's family. We're going to find out what that actually looks like. What does it mean to be his and in Christ? We're going to read much about the godly character of the children of God. We won't see it as a a do and don't list. We'll see it as this is kind of how the family runs. You're part of the family, now act like it. And number four, we'll find out about the unity of the children of God, evidenced primarily in our actions towards one another and the way that we pray for each other. That will be the series of themes we'll find. Now, in your worship folder today, you got a copy. If you're in a small group, this is your notes for this week. We're doing kind of a sermon-based thrust of small groups as we kick off the year together, the fall. And you'll notice this is your talking points for this week. In this, one of the questions in there talks about, of those four themes, what is the one that is most significant or most important to the stage of life you're in right now? And you'll get to talk about that as a group. Now, every week when we kind of conclude our time together, we're going to leave you with a game plan. And just kind of boil it all down. What's the big idea? What are we after? What do we do with this? Now, I want to say something about that. What's going to be so great, and I appreciate Hilke and the communications team with Chris, Bill, the idea, we're going to push this out on all of our Trinity social media. So whether it's Instagram or Facebook or whatnot. And as you see that, would that not only be a great reminder to you, oh yeah, that's the game plan for this week, but would you in turn share that? Would you repost that and send that out? Would the people then in your social media world see what God is challenging you to consider and be about week by week? So we wrap it up this way today. This is this week's game plan on the chalkboard, right? And by the way, I love the people who put this up there. I've just never had a coach who wrote that good, right? But this is great. This reminds us this week, live according to whose you are. I know we didn't get to unpack it much today, but I just want that to sit within you a little bit Live according to who you are. What does that even mean? And what does that look like in my life? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today so grateful. God, our hearts are full as we think about what we're about to embark on. We, we think about even a, a concept. This is a football, not by way of condescension, but by way of fundamentals. The foundation, would you build that within us? And even as we've read even briefly today, grace and peace to you through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, would we be a people this week who walk in your grace, who know your peace. Now you may be here today at Trinity Church and we talk about this idea of who's the team in this book of Ephesians. We said it's you, but, but you're, you're sharp enough to know I've, I've really never made any kind of commitment to Jesus. I've never really responded to him in anything. I'm, I'm not really sure I'm a part of the team. And, and I want to tell you today, you can be. You can join his team. And the great news is his tryouts are not based on your ability or based on something you can do to somehow earn a spot. Instead, he welcomes you. He welcomes one and all, join my team. And he does that through the lens of the gospel. The gospel I love to share through the lens of the ABCs. A is admit. Admit that you've been living life on your terms, not on God's, and therefore there's a problem. There's a break in the relationship, and you knew that before I even ever said it today. B, believe. 
believe that the God-man that we've mentioned today, Jesus, who entered into this world 2,000 years ago, believe that he lived a sinless life, believe that he died a sacrificial death, believe that he rose supernaturally on the third day, believe that he's the only savior available, and see is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I want to join your team. I want to be a part of what you are doing in the world. I need you. And the great news is you can make that kind of commitment. You can respond to Jesus today without any more than an initial conversation with him. And I encourage you, before you leave this place, make that decision. If you have any questions about it, find me, find one of our pastors. Don't leave here without making that commitment. And how exciting will it be for you that in the coming weeks we're talking about a team that you're a part of? Father, we love you. We're so grateful for your extravagant love toward us. Help us live in it this week and give it away. We pray in the great name of Jesus, amen.